All right, well, let me invite you now to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. Um, you know, one of the things in the midst of all the things that are happening in this world, um, we can be tempted to kind of derail, uh, and yet God still wants the church to grow and to function and uh, for it to be fed by God's, uh, by his word. And so uh, we want to continue on in our study of the book of Acts. I, I want to thank, uh, he's not here, but Dennis, who spoke last week, did a fabulous job. I listened to it, really thankful for that. Um, but I want to invite you now to stand with me, Acts chapter 11 and verses 1 through 18. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in the house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave, them, or gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. O Lord, in the midst of all the troubles of this world, you still want us, Lord, to pay attention to your word and to keep plugging away in our growth toward being like Christ and, uh, Lord, becoming the people you want us to be. So, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us in Jesus' name? And, Lord, allow me as your messenger to be faithful to your truth and, Lord, to reflect what you want to say to your people today, we ask in your name. Amen. All right, thank you. You may be seated. 
Well, some of you know that this past weekend, my wife and I were gone, and we went down to Temecula, California, because um, we went down to see Victoria, my daughter-in-law, and my new grandson, Raiden James. And some of you may know that we tried to do that earlier when he was born, but because of COVID, we weren't able to fully embrace him, to see him through a window, but that's it. And of course, we had a wonderful time. We got to hold him, to feed him, um, to rock him to sleep. I all just kind of came back as a daddy, you know, but now I'm a grandfather, as well as to change a diaper. Um, that all is all part of the package, right? Um, but one of, the, one of the questions that was asked over and over was, who do you think Raiden looks like? I mean, is he a Phillips or is he a Lawrence? Uh, does he have his father's eyes, his ears, his lips, or his eyebrows? Does he have his mother's nose, head, or chin? Does he have dimples? And we concluded, quite politically correct, that he was a perfect blend of both of them. What was interesting is that, you know, one day you get up, it's like, oh, yeah, I see Victoria in here. And then next day it's like, oh, that's all Gavin. You know, so it was just really kind of funny to kind of go through that whole process. But one thing was sure. He is a Phillips. He is my grandson. He is fully included in the Phillips family. He belongs to the Phillips clan. Now, friends, this is the tension of our text today. It seeks to ask and answer the question, who is welcome in the family of God? Who has the right to be called the child of God? And what gives that person that right? And what our text will show us is that all who put their faith in Christ are welcome into the family of God. Now, I know that's a statement that doesn't rock your world, but you know that in theory. But friends, this was an issue back when the, the gospel was going out in mission from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so when the hallmarks of authentic con conversion are met, we must not stand in the way of embracing one another as family. We may come from different and even opposing cultures, but we are united by Christ and welcomed into the family of God. That's the, that's the tension, that's the, the push and the point of this text. Now you'll notice that then we're in a passage that really is a repetition of chapter 10. So much of what happens that Peter shares is what has already been reflected for us by Luke in chapter 10. Peter with the vision, Cornelius with the angels. And it just shows us that Christ was orchestrating all these events together in accordance with his declared mission that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And it's also repeated in a smaller fashion in chapter 15, where Peter stands Pharisees by reminding them of what God had done in Caesarea in the home of Cornelius. So why this repetition? Well, typically when we see an event or story repeated for us in Scripture, it means that God is wanting to emphasize something. It's, it's, it means that God is wanting to make a point and show us that something important is taking place. Remember when we were in the book of Exodus? And what we found was that there were like five chapters of here's the instructions for the tabernacle. And then, oh, just a few chapters later, here's another five chapters of instructions for the tabernacle. 
Well, the first one was the instructions. The second one was them actually building it. But the point there was it's repeated for emphasis. It's there for us to see a nuance that God wants to bring out of the story. And in fact, have you ever wondered, why do we have four Gospels? A lot of the stories are repeated. Because God, in his wisdom, wants us to have a deeper and a fuller understanding so that we can get the gamut of the perspective that shows the, the, the different aspects of Christ and his gospel and his pursuit of man, all from different angles. So although we might be tempted to just breeze through Acts 11, 1 through 18, because it's a repetition, we need to be careful that that is not our attitude. We need to see that God has included this account for a very good reason. Luke isn't just trying to fill the space in his volume. No, he wants us to be sure that we don't miss the point. Now, just think about structure. This passage really divides into three sections. There's the first part, the criticism. Then there's the explanation. Then there is the response. That basically is our outline for, our this, for this morning the criticism, the explanation, and the response. And as we proceed, we will see how easily we are guilty of standing in the way of God's gospel work. And we will ultimately see that all who bear the hallmarks of authentic Christianity are to be welcomed into the family of God. There is a tendency for us to be, uh, I need to stay away, I need to stay away, I need to stay away, as opposed to having a heart of saying, if these things are true, then welcome, then welcome, then welcome. So let's first of all look at the criticism. And as we, we, we begin here in chapter 11, verse 1, we need to remember that it is on the heels of chapter 10, where by God's design, Cornelius and Peter are drawn together, and Peter preaches the gospel in the home of Cornelius, and the first Gentiles, we're told, receive the word of God. And the news of the Gentile conversion spreads quickly through the brothers and the apostles in Judea and ultimately reaches Jerusalem. Now notice, first of all, the the conversion of the Gentiles is heard. Read verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. This is Good news. This is fast-spreading news we see here. The Gentiles have received the word of God. Now, in Luke and in Acts, to receive Jesus and to receive the word of God is to receive God and his gospel. If you remember back in Luke 8, the parable of the sower, those who actually receive the word of God and bore fruit are the ones that actually receive the gospel. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 48, Jesus says, anyone who receives me receives the Father who sent me. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 16, if you receive a disciple who preaches the word of Jesus, you receive Jesus. And if you receive Jesus, you receive the Father. Now remember, it's Luke who's writing his gospel as well as the book of Acts. And so this motif, this idea continues on in Acts. We saw it in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. The first Christians on the day of Pentecost received the word of God. In Acts 8, 14, we saw the Samaritans received the word of God. In Acts 17, 11, a little bit later, we're going to see that the Bereans received the word of God with eagerness. 
And then here in Acts 11, verse 1, the Gentiles receive the word of God. So the expression receive the word of God is a technical phrase, which means they received Christ, which means they were converted, which means they were saved. And friends, we, we see that fleshed out in chapter 10, if you want to just quickly look there. And in verse 36, where it says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Jesus is the one who brings the gospel of peace to Israel, but also to the Gentiles. So there's this conversion of the Gentiles, and it's heard. But then, right after that, we find the criticism of the circumcision party that is expressed. Now, I want you to read the text carefully with me here so you can be sure what it is that they are criticizing Peter for. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You see, they're not upset that the Gentiles were converted. They're criticizing Peter because he had gone in among them, among these unclean Gentiles, in such a way as to violate the Old Testament law. Now, who is this circumcision party? It would appear that this designation doesn't represent the Jewish believers as a whole, but they are a subset of the Jews who tend to be quite excessive in particular in keeping the law, possibly former Pharisees. That's certainly what we have in chapter 15. The idea of circumcision, circumcision party, really is just a code word for those who were committed to keeping some of the Old Testament standards, the food laws, the feasts, the Sabbath, and ultimately the circumcision of men. They were the self-proclaimed, so to speak, neighborhood watch of the church, making sure that those who were followers of God maintained and kept the law. So although Christ had come and although the gospel had reached the Jews, there was still this blending of Judaism and this newfound Christianity. Now, you probably have some of those kinds of neighbors, um, or you probably encounter those kinds of people yourself, right? The, the spare the air party. They're watching to see if you're going to put wood in your fireplace or that you're going to barbecue some chicken or you're going to even cut your grass on the spare of the day. You're not riding your bike, you're driving your car. How could you, right? There's the recycling party. They're watching to make sure that you put the right thing in the right can, in the right place, doing it right. right? There's people that are wired that way. Then there's the you have more than 15 items in the express line party. And they're counting each individual yogurt in the package, right? See, there's an attitude that people have. And so this is, this is not so much a, an official uh, party that's set aside. This is more of an attitude of the heart that, that people kind of rally together with. Oh, wait a second. No, no, no. You shouldn't have gone in there. You shouldn't have defiled yourself by, by, by eating with and staying with these Gentiles. Right? That's the attitude that is taking place here. They were concerned about the ceremonial protocol in entering a Gentile home and having food and fellowship with them. Now, to us, that seems quite petty, doesn't it? 
In fact, you might, you might read this and say, man, these people are, they're, they're, they must be bigots, or maybe they're even racist here. But friends, it's actually rooted in God's law. The division between Israel and the Gentiles wasn't created by the Jewish people. It was commanded by God. So before you quickly run from this text and come to your own conclusions, we need to jump in and make sure we understand what's going on here and why. If you remember from our time in the book of Exodus that God brought his people to Mount Sinai, having got them out of Egypt, and we read in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, the following. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God's saying, I am selecting you out of all the peoples to be my own possession. They are to be a holy nation, a unique nation, set apart from every other nation. They are God's treasured possession. And so they're not to worship any other gods. They're not to intermarry with other people. Then in chapter 20, it's not surprising that what we find is that these Ten Commandments begin with these words. Verse 2 of chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. There's a uniqueness about, about them. There's a, a separation that God is expecting of them. And even further, in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 22, here's what we read. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the custom, customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. See what God is saying. Be careful as you go in. You're not to take on their customs. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beasts from the unclean and the unclean bird from the unclean. You shall not make yourself detestable by beast or by bird or anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. I just, just summarize this, right? God says to Israel, I've separated you from the peoples. I have given you rules about what you can eat and cannot eat because I don't want you to be tempted to follow their ways and worship their gods. So this is a God-commanded, God-instructed separation of Israel from the rest of the peoples. Now, of course, we know that the history of Israel is a history of ongoing failure to keep this command. And the fruit of their disobedience was to drift away from God and turn to these Gentile gods and then suffer Yahweh's displeasure. So these laws were put in place so that Israel might maintain their unique 
identity. They were God's chosen people. They were not created to give Israel a sense of racial superiority. That's not the intent. Although it likely turned into that with some. They were to observe these commands to help them maintain their unique and holy relationship with God. And the reality is, friends, when God looks down at us because we are his church, there is a unique relationship there. He loves us. He's chosen us. There is a distinction there. Now, as often what happens is that God's people tend to build fences around God's laws so that God's laws are practiced in a way that really don't maintain God's law. They kind of violate God's law. As such, it became a practice to not have deeper relationships or fellowship or even to share a meal with a Gentile. That's not necessarily in the law, but it's the implication because of the fences that are put around those laws. And they, were, they ended up doing that. Why? For fear that they might not become unclean. Now, don't be so shocked, friends, because you and I do similar things. Such fencing practices are not that unusual for us. Let me give you a couple of examples. You say to your children, children, never get into a car with a stranger. Now, do we think that every stranger has evil intent? No. But we consider that to be wise counsel because it only takes one stranger to cause trouble for that child. So we have a principle that we're functioning by that is really a fencing of the problem. Another one, don't ever pick up a hitchhiker. Why? Because are we saying that all hitchhikers are axe murderers? No, in fact, most hitchhikers are actually really thankful if you can just give them a ride from one place to another. But we create a fence out of fear and out of protection. Here's one that maybe is a little bit more current, right? Don't go into a home or have dinner with someone who is not vaccinated, right? We know that they ignore science. We know that they don't care about their neighbors. We know that they might give you COVID. It's all a fencing born out of fear. So we do this. And so it's not surprising then that Israel, having been given the law, creates fences and habits and practices that go beyond the Lord's intent. So Israel, out of fear of becoming unclean, put up fences. Don't fellowship with the Gentile. Don't share a meal with the Gentile because it might make you unclean. And friends, over time, they developed barriers of faulty beliefs and attitudes that became um, really a, a dividing wall between them. Let me just mention three that kind of flowed out of this attitude. Number one, we're all better than Gentiles. That's why um, they, you know, they thought themselves to be intrinsically better, and that's why they called Gentiles dogs. It's not that God thought that they were dogs, but the Israelites saw themselves as better and superior, and they looked down upon the Gentiles, right? They forgot their separation was not because of their holiness, but was because of the grace and love of God that they did not deserve. Secondly, 
moral holiness for them equal, uh, equaled spiritual holiness. In other words, to not eat certain food or to avoid certain people for them brought them closer to God. The moral behavior was the means of their right status with God in their thinking. But that is not what is true. In fact, when Jesus comes on the scene, he confronts that idea and he says this in Mark chapter 7, verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the thing that comes out of a person are what defile him. He's speaking there that, that true holiness is a heart issue. Not just simply who you eat with and who you fellowship with. The third thing is this, the Jews saw themselves as the real people of God. They believed that because of their lineage that they were the real people of God. No matter how bad they were, they were still the people of God. That's true. But when they thought about the Gentiles, they said, and no matter how good the Gentiles might be, they were still outcasts. You see how these these attitudes are not a reflection of what God intended, but they ended up being the practice. So in their thinking, even if Cornelius and his household have now received the word, they're still outcasts. So just step back a little bit. If, if Cornelius and his household had converted to Judaism and come to Jerusalem and wanted to worship at the temple, they might have gotten to the temple. They might have even gotten into the, the court of the Gentiles. But even that was as far as they could go. Why? Because they weren't Jews. They're still outcasts. They're still outsiders. But what Peter had found and now understands from his earlier vision is that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That's Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. So now... Peter must give an account for his actions. So we have this criticism, but now Peter responds by giving an account. Of course, a lot of what he says now in his explanation is similar to what we have read in chapter 10. Here he's giving a defense of his actions, but unlike Luke's account in chapter 10, where the events are kind of intertwined, what we have here is Peter explaining what's happened from his perspective and in a chronological order. I just noticed, first of all, Peter's vision of the sheet. I'm not going to read it all again, but simply want to say this. There is only one really difference with his account and what we read earlier, and that is what's included here as far as animals not to eat, um, or, or that, are, sorry, that, are, that are there in the, in the blanket, are the birds or the beasts of prey. And once again, Peter insists that nothing common or unclean has come into his mouth up to that point. How would he defile himself with what is there to go and to eat it? But what he's doing in reporting that, he's saying, listen, I was in the same place as you guys who are criticizing me up until this point. This was my attitude. This was my heart. I don't want to violate what God says I shouldn't do. And just as God had lessons to teach Peter through this vision and through his dealings with Cornelius, so those who are now opposing him have lessons to learn. Peter says, that's where I was. This is where I am now. But it's all because of God. And notice Peter's interaction with Cornelius. 
We're on point number two, by the way, um, and letter B. Thank you. Notice that Cornelius is not even mentioned in this whole uh, recapping of the story. This is no longer about Cornelius, see? We've moved from the, the micro, chapter 10, to the macro. This is Gentiles in general. And so Peter is speaking now just about what it is that God has said, what, it got, what is God uh, showing him through all of this. The Spirit introduced Peter, uh, instructed Peter to, as to what to do, as well as to make no distinction. The idea of make no distinction has the idea of don't hesitate, but it means don't, don't waffle in your thinking about whether I should associate with them or not, or that kind of stuff. I'm God, and I'm giving you a command, go. Go and proclaim the gospel. So he goes and he does that. And by the way, we learn here that Peter brought six brothers from Joppa with him who would be witnesses of the events, and they are standing now with him at his side as he is standing in Jerusalem with those who are criticizing him. And they are there as witnesses to testify that what Peter is saying actually took place, did take place. So we have Peter's vision, Peter's interaction. And now what we want to look at is Peter's lesson from the Lord. See, Peter demonstrates that his going into the Gentile home was not his plan, but it was directed by God himself. And as Peter begins to, to preach, the Holy Spirit falls on those people there, the Gentiles in particular. Peter, then having demonstrated that, now remembers what he was told by the Lord. We have that recorded for us in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. For John baptized with water, Jesus said, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he's making this connection. He started to see some things, and he's telling the story that I began to, to make this connection about what was happening here. And I want you to notice a word that is used in verse 17 that really is key to our understanding here. It says, if, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? The word is the word same. This is key. Here's the argument that he's making. I want you, I, I want you as my, my audience, he's saying, to recognize that what happened to the Gentiles is the same thing that happened to us on the day of Pentecost. In other words, Acts 2 was the Jewish Pentecost, but what we have in Acts 10 and Acts 11 and Acts 15 is now a recording of the Gentile Pentecost. It's the same. And just to, to emphasize that a little bit more, I want you to notice as we kind of reflect now both in chapter 10 and, and some other places around here, how what was taking place is the same. There was the same sermon that emphasized their need to believe and the resulting forgiveness. We find that in Acts chapter 10 and verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, this is at the Jewish Pentecost, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the same sermon. It's the same gospel. We also have the same evidence. 
the evidence of speaking in tongues. Verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. That's Acts chapter 10, verse 46. And then in Acts chapter 2 and verse 11, we read both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling uh, uh, in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So there, there was the evidence of tongues in both locations. Now, just as at Pentecost, the Gentiles start speaking in the known languages of the Gentiles. And that's what speaking tongues has always been, the supernatural gift of declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ to foreign people in their very own language and dialect. And this is what happens. They begin to testify. They begin to speak in tongues, the same sermon, the same evidence, and then ultimately the same baptism. Baptism with the Holy Spirit. We have that in Acts 11 and verse 16. And I remember the word of the Lord. He said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And back in Acts 1.5, again, John said the same thing. So again and again and again, Peter is hearkening back to the Pentecost event. And in verse 15 of our text, he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Now, just step back. Do you see what's happening here? Peter is making sure that those who are criticizing him recognize there's a bigger picture going on, that God is orchestrating all these events to bring Jews and Gentiles together under one umbrella. It's called the church. Under one leader, it's called Christ. It's the same sermon. It's the same event or uh, same uh, evidence. It's the same baptism. So in summary, he's saying what they experienced is the same as what we experience. Secondly, this is the Lord's doing. Third, so how can I stand in the way? So friends, what God is teaching Peter and the circumcision party and us is that there are no second-class citizens in the family of God. There is no preferred status in the kingdom of God. Now, if you've ever taken a, a trip on a plane, you know that people are divided into classes, right? There's usually three sections. There's the first-class passengers. They're always allowed to go on first so that they can get settled into their comfortable chairs and get a glass of wine and, I don't know, just chit-chat for a while before the plane takes off. Then there's the, the business class passengers. They're all allowed to enter after the first class people. And they're given newspapers and have their suit jackets hung up for them and quickly pull out their laptops and start making money. And then there's the cattle, I mean economy, where we're forced to walk through the first class who kind of look out the window nonchalantly as everyone passes by, right? The business class people, they're not even paying attention because they're so busy in what they're doing, right? Because they've got business to do. And we walk through those places to the back of the plane. And once we're seated, we are insulted by having this little kind of opaque curtain drawn. You cannot cross this line. See, friends, this is, this is what happens in our world. Different designations, different divisions are just naturally a part of the society in which we live. 
The last time I went to Ukraine, I was privileged to have Alexei Dolotov with me, and I quickly found out that I was with an important young man. And the reason for that is because he had a credit card with status, which meant that when we got to Heathrow Airport, which is where we were going through, we were able to go into various airport lounges. And we moved from being the common people looking at what to get from McDonald's and sitting on hardback chairs as we waited for hours for our connecting flights to being welcomed to unending food and drink and soft, comfortable chairs, even had the privilege, if we wanted to, to, to get a shower or, or have ice cream on demand. My friends, see, this is the way of the world. Preferred status is earned and is only given to those who are worthy, who can prove their preferred status. But when it comes to following Christ, there is no division of status. And no one is getting preferential treatment. You don't start at the bronze level and somehow work your way up to platinum. There's no preferred status in the kingdom of God. I mean, just think about it. It would really be kind of silly, right? Those of you that are at bronze status, um, well, the elders might pray for you, but we're going to wait until you get to silver status before the elders actually start paying attention to you. And of course, silver status, if you're coming to church, we have certain rows that you can sit in. And, but if you're at the premium status, you know, we are at your beck and call. I mean, it's just nonsense, isn't it? But this is the way the world thinks. This is the way the world functions, but not in the body of Christ. Jews are not superior to Gentiles in any way because God shows no partiality. The Spirit of God falls on both Jews and Gentiles in the same way. All authentic Christians receive the same gift and are welcomed into the family of God. The truth is that because of the gospel, we're all welcomed into first class. We're all given the status as firstborn sons who are heirs. And none of us is worthy to be treated by God with such grace and kindness. It's a wonderful thing, friends. So God is just hammering away on this nail to say to Peter and now to the Jews, you're believers, but so are the Gentiles. And you're not better than 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 the Gentiles. You are one and the same. And Peter is just rocked by this, and we'll find out that they are too. Notice now the response, verse 18. How does the circumcision party, listening to Peter plead his case, respond to what they are hearing? Luke gives us two responses. First of all, they fell silent. Literally, it means they abandoned their objections and criticisms. No one stood up to argue with Peter. There was nothing to say. Peter had argued his case and proven his point. But there was a lot for them to take in. And we don't quite comprehend this, friends. This was a radical shift in their thinking, in their dietary restrictions, in their way of life, in their worldview. It's a lot to take in. But they could only agree with Peter's report 
and his conclusions that God was truly and radically taking the gospel to the Gentiles and that the division between them had been removed by God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as a result of that, they glorify God. The fact that they are glorifying God means that they were in awe and wonder of his kindness and of his grace that he granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. In Acts chapter 5, verse 31, Peter, having been arrested, is standing before the Jewish council, if you remember, and he's giving his defense there, and this is what he says. We must obey God rather than men, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. But now, in chapter 11, verse 18, it's clearly stated that God now has granted repentance to the Gentiles. Now, friends, just pause for a minute. We did this a couple of weeks ago. But I would probably dare to say that 99.9% of us in this room fall into the Gentile category. Say, this, friends, this relates to you. What's happening here is the, 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 the dam being broken and the water gushing out and this good news of the gospel not limited to the to the Jews, but now goes forward to the Gentiles. And that's why it's come to us. Now, repentance has been granted by God to Israel. And it's been granted by God to the Gentiles. And repentance that leads to life is described as a gift granted by God himself. Ultimately, the only reason anyone can hear the word of the gospel and believe is because God has first granted them repentance. Man left to himself will not turn to God in repentance. It is God who must do the work in our hearts. He prepares our hearts. He prepares our hearts for the seed of the gospel, and he grants that repentance to us. It's a wonderful thing, friends, because we couldn't do it. So who then is an authentic Christian? It's worth asking that question here. And it's worth asking the the follow-up question there. What are the hallmarks of an authentic Christian? Now, the question is, what's a hallmark? Well, a hallmark is a stamp or a mark that a manufacturer puts on his product to give it authenticity. I took my Apple Watch off this morning to see if there was a hallmark on there, and there is. It's not, it's not printed like a stamp, but it is printed on the back there. It says Apple Watch, and it gives the date and the serial number. All that. That's a hallmark. Why? Why is that important? Because it gives evidence that what I have is actually what it's supposed to be. It's the real deal. If you've ever watched the Antiques Roadshow, then you see how important a hallmark is. It distinguishes the authentic from the imitation. Hallmarks can be found on your fine china, on your gold, your silver, on musical instruments, on computers, your watch, a variety of things. So what then is, what are the hallmarks of an authentic Christian? Well, if we reflect over a passage, there's really four answers. And we've touched on all of them, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time with them here. But we've touched on all of them. 
but they're really all saying the same thing. Number one, first hallmark is that we receive the word of the Lord. Right? They listen to the preaching of God's word and believe in the same uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, they receive. They, they're baptized by. They're they're gifted the Holy Spirit. Right. That is what happens to all true believers at the moment of their conversion. This is not a subsequent thing. These, there might have been like a little subsequent thing here at the beginning of the church, but that is not the standard. That's not how it moves forward. They're gifted with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Third, they're granted repentance that leads to life. The life here is the result of repentance. A life that is guided by the Word of God through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's what the Gospel of John is all about. That's what he says. He summarizes it this way. John 20, uh, 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So there's this life that is the result then of, of our conversion. The fourth thing, fourth hallmark here, is that they hear the message of the gospel and are saved, verse 14. This is the stated goal of the angel uh, when he said to Cornelius, I'm sending you Peter so that when he comes preaching, you and your household can be saved. So these hallmarks then of an authentic Christian receive the word, they receive the Holy Spirit, they're granted repentance that leads to life, they're saved. All of these are different aspects of the dynamics of the gospel that take place at the moment of your conversion. So the question is, are you an authentic Christian? Have you received the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you have the Holy Spirit residing in your hearts? And the heart is is a word that is used in Scripture to describe the, the inner man. Not the physical heart, but your spiritual being. Do you have the the Holy Spirit residing in your heart? Has God granted you repentance so that you have turned from your sins and to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and to live under his lordship for his glory? Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all who are willing to cry out to God for the forgiveness of sins. Now, This world loves to put people into categories, pitting them one against the other, the rich, the poor, the liberal, the conservative, the white, the black, the brown, the weak, and the strong. But in God's economy, there's only two categories. There's the unbeliever, and there's the believer. And the message of the gospel comes to those who are unbelievers, who are in bondage to their sin, and it says, by God's kindness and grace, he has made a way by which you can be saved, by which you can be reconciled to God. Your sins are many, but through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven and welcomed into the family of God. And when you believe, you will see that the family of God is fenceless. Should be anyway. All have equal status before God. And there are no second-class citizens. Just listen to how, how John begins his gospel. John 1 and verse 12 and 13. But to all 
who did receive him, speaking about Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, friends, there's there's an aspect here where this is Christianity 101. We know this, that that God loves everyone. We, We get that. But what's happening here in the book of Acts is that God has inspired this for us to make sure that we don't forget that there are no distinctions between people in the body of Christ in the sense of who is equal. We are all God's people. And when we stop and we pause and we think about our friends in Ukraine, we're all on equal status, friends. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're concerned about their well-being. Now, let me just bring three closing thoughts as we draw this to a close. Number one, are you standing in the way of God today? Do you have attitudes, beliefs, or practices that you have brought in your Christian walk that jade your passion for the spread of the gospel? Or since you have become a Christian, have you developed any attitudes or beliefs or practices that stand in the way of the gospel? See, friends, we we all bring old man habits into our Christian walk. We have all these old ways of thinking and behaving and things that we love, and and Christ comes and gives us new life, and and we're saying we're, we're all clean. Okay, we're all clean, but we bring a bunch of habits that jump right in and linger with us. You know what I'm talking about because you still have them, right? And the point of our Christian walk then is to slowly over time be able to to progressively sanctify our lives so that we we reflect closer to the holiness that God has called us to. See, thankfully, God is at work in our hearts. He's trying to strip away those old habits and conform us to the image of Christ. So do you see any particular groups of people as the enemy? Do you see them as unworthy recipients of God's grace? Are you harboring any sinful attitude toward a particular race or a particular country? When I was growing up in England, honestly, I had that toward the German people. Why? Because of all the atrocities that happened in the Second World War, because of of the Holocaust and the way the Jews were treated. It's natural, it's understandable, but it was sinful of me to have that blanket attitude. So let me ask you, what is your attitude toward those who are Muslim or the Muslim countries that they are from? Are you offended at the thought that God might grant them repentance that leads to life, that they don't deserve it? Maybe even right now, your attitude toward Russia and the people of Russia has been jaded by their evil leader, but it's not the people of Russia. You've got to be able to make that distinction. We have people in our church that are from Russia. We don't want to say, oh, you're a Russian. We don't like you now. And they'll say, look, the reason we left. But see, we have this tendency to kind of blanket toward certain people groups. And, and friends, it gets in the way of our gospel mission. Are we standing in the way of God? Today, is your heart full of hatred at the atrocities that you're hearing about or watching on the screens? Do you see them as evil and unworthy of God's gift of repentance? 
And although I may have said it briefly here, let me say it again. Don't make the mistake of allowing the evil practices of a country's leadership to jade your heart toward the people who live in that country, whether it's Iran, Afghanistan, Russia, or Canada. I'm serious. See, we can have an attitude toward people groups because of the behavior of one or two people or maybe a group of people in that country. Now, friends, number two. Do you have a teachable heart before God? Oh, boy, Peter had to learn a lesson, right? And the Jews listening to Peter had to be willing to learn a lesson. And clearly they did not fully comprehend the implications of what Christ had said in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Yet, as God and his mission unfolded, they needed to be ready to adjust what God was teaching them. And friends, that's what God does with us. When we repent, we receive new life and forgiveness of our sins. We enter into a new journey with Christ. What had been a journey to Christ now begins a journey with Christ, and it's a journey of discipleship. And along that journey, he is refining us. He's showing us things that we're bringing into our Christian life. He's exposing attitudes and perspectives that really violates what he has called us to. And so he's teaching us and he's guiding us through his word. But our hearts must be willing to be challenged, to be corrected, to be changed. See, he confronts our sinful habits, he challenges our sinful attitudes, and he calls us to listen to repent of our sin and to conform ourselves to his will. And sometimes what Christ calls you to do means a radical change in your lifestyle, a radical change in your behavior. Sometimes he calls you what we call to radically amputate habits and activities, just to cut them out and to replace them with godly things. He calls you to change so that you're conforming yourself to his image. The question is, are you willing to do that? And when he confronts you, will you do that? Finally, do you have a passion for the spread of the gospel to the end of the earth? It's much easier for us to hunker down in our comfort and security and to enjoy our lives with the wealth and privilege that God has blessed us with in this country and forget about the rest of the world. I don't know about you, I just felt really awkward this week. I felt really awkward sleeping on a comfortable bed, having a comfortable roof over my head, having a refrigerator that was pretty full, and having the somewhat security of being able to walk out in peace when all this stuff is happening in Ukraine. It just it seemed wrong in one sense. But friends, the mission to the end of the earth is still taking place. Christ continues to take his gospel to people all around the world who are ignorant, who are in bondage, and even who are enemies. He is Lord of all, he's told us, but he is also Savior to all who believe. Jew and Gentile, rich or poor, male or female, slave or free, Russian and Ukrainian. And there'll be challenges for the people of God who are on mission 
There will be evil opposition from individuals, from leaders, from the devil himself. There will be times of extreme suffering and hardship, and God will call his children to endure and to put their hope in Christ. And we're told that there will be wars and shipwrecks and earthquakes and famine and persecution, but the mission to the end of the earth continues. How do I know that? Because the church is still here. And Christ has not come yet. The fields are still white unto harvest. God's church can still press on until the day the Lord returns in glory. For the Lord will, himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. He is coming. And so as a church... We say, you know what? The spread of the gospel to the end of the earth must continue. It has to continue. And we must be committed to it in our own little small way to have an impact on the, for the kingdom in this, in this world. And by God's grace, we can do that. Let's pray. Lord, help us today to, to see, Lord, that, that we can be people who are prejudiced in our hearts because of old traditions that we hold to, because of new experiences that we've had, because of people that we've met or leaders that are around the world or individuals, Lord, that just seem to have a different way of doing things. Lord, we can be people who show partiality, who put people in categories, who think of ourselves higher than we ought to, Lord, help us to, to take all those things, even in, in the kind of emotional way that we've experienced this world this week. And to see, Lord, that there is this, this unity that, that comes by being the body of Christ, whether it's in Bolivia, or Ukraine, or, or even in Russia, that God's people on their knees praying, opening up the word and being fed and guided by it, Lord, that that's all part of this this wonderful kingdom, Lord, that you've created by your sons coming to this earth, that you've drawn us into, and that our hope is found in you. So, Lord, may we not be the people who stand in your way. May we be the people who, who open the doors so that your gospel can go forward, so that the church can be united, so that the things that are, that are important, Lord, are realized. Help us, Lord, not to be petty, Help us not to, to, to put unnecessary fences up, Lord. Uh, but Lord, to do our part, to see that your gospel goes forward in power as you want it to, Lord. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Mm -hmm.